everybody. Oh, come on now. Good morning, everybody. Thank you. That's a little better. Hey, it's great to be here with you today. We are in our series called Make Love Work. We're going through the book Songs of Solomon. Man, I keep hearing in the hallways people coming up to me and saying, just thank you for the series. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I think the guys I met last week. But regardless, it's been a good week. If you weren't here last week, awkward clap. It's okay. Uh, next week, uh, I encourage you to be here for these next weeks because if you are in a relationship or ever going to be in a relationship, this wisdom is amazing for you. So what we've been doing is we've been looking at this couple, Solomon and his bride, now bride, Shulamite, and we've been looking at their progress through the book, Songs of Solomon, and we see them meet, we see them fall in love, we see them pursue each other, we see all these amazing things they say to each other, you're amazing, you're awesome, my beloved, my dove. She shares her insecurities, he watches over those with love and tender care. We see them get engaged, we see them uh, get married, we see them have their honeymoon, and that's where we left off last week, and we're not going back there, but I do want to pick up where we left off last week, by God's grace, that is over. Songs of Solomon, chapter five, the second part, the very last part of verse one, it says this, it says this. And I forgot to say this in the very last service last week, so I said it in here, I'll say it again. There are exactly 111 lines before this verse, and there are exactly 111 lines after this verse. This is the exact middle of the text, and it's not an accident. Because what we know is this is God looking down on the honeymoon, on the marriage bed, and he's saying... Good job. You waited. You kept yourselves pure. Yes, it was hard. Yes, it was tempting. Yes, you wanted to give in, but you fought it. You fought it. You fought it. And now on your honeymoon night, you've enjoyed each other and everything is beautiful and God has commissioned it. And they go right from the beauty, right from the beauty of that relationship, right into everyday life. The honeymoon is officially over. Now we look at this, Songs of Solomon, chapter five, look at verse two. So we're now on to, at some point in the future, Days, weeks, months, years, it doesn't tell us. Verse two, I slept, but my heart was awake when I heard my lover knocking and calling. Open to me, my treasure, my darling, my dove, my perfect one. So what do you think is on his mind if he shows up late at night knocking on the door, speaking all kinds of praise over you ladies? Yep, that's exactly what's going on here. So in this culture, in order to understand what's really going on here and how this fits and applies to you today, you gotta understand some context. So in that culture, Solomon and his beautiful bride would have slept in different rooms, possibly even in different houses. They are in totally different locations. And what we know is she's in bed, but she's not asleep. I slept, but my heart was awake. You know how that is. She's there, but she's not really there. She's dozing. What we begin to pick up throughout the text, I'll feed forward and tell you a little bit about what's going to happen. I'll just show it to you in the text as we go. But she's a bit frustrated. See, apparently she's in bed. She was waiting on him and he showed up late. And when he shows up knocking on the door, he's like, hey, baby doll, honey bear, sweetie. Oh, baby, I love you. So have I ever told you how perfect you are? Now, literally, the words that he goes over, my treasure, my darling, my dove, these are all words he's used throughout, but then he adds one. I mean, he is a smooth talker, my perfect one. Oh, baby, there's not a blemish on you. You are perfect. Oh, just open the door, honey. Come on, baby girl. <laughs> now, this is huge, huge. Okay, 
So there are two ways to read the Song of Solomon. The first way is well, the way we're reading it, the way I believe is the best way, which is there's a man and a woman, they fall in love, they meet, they get married, they deal with struggles, and they have to continue through marriage anyway. The other way to read the book Songs of Solomon is it's an allegory, it's a metaphor for how Jesus loves his church, and there is wisdom in that. Now, I don't want to weird any of you out. Any of you visiting today, I'm going to say some things that weird you out, but stick with me. So Jesus says that his bride, he's the groom, his bride is the church. So every man, woman, doesn't matter how old, doesn't matter their culture, doesn't matter their color of skin, doesn't matter how rich or wise or poor, doesn't matter. All of them are his bride. So men, you are the bride of Christ. That's not intended to weird you out. Don't read too much into that. What it means is this. When God created marriage, he created it through the lens of a man protecting, caring for, and providing for a woman for the rest of his life. And Jesus says, I will do that for you. So this is why Paul gives his advice. You know, men, treat your wives as a co-heir. Men, treat your wives as though she's your own. If you care for yourself, do it for her in the same way. In the same way that Jesus loves his church, you love your bride. So this is a beautiful picture of Jesus in Revelation who says, I stand at the door and knock. Anybody who hears my voice and opens the door, I'm gonna come in and dine with them. That's beautiful because what we see is Solomon being Jesus. But back into the other interpretation, we have the first fight of this young couple's marriage. Look at what happened, how we got into this situation. The other part of verse two, my head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of the night. Now what's going on here is is Solomon in one little line has told you it's late. See, this is uh, what's called, in Middle East, is what's called a Mediterranean climate. This would be similar to California. It's roughly, I can't remember now, I think it's 4 or 5%, I may be off on that, of the world's uh, climates are Mediterranean. There's no accident, by the way, that Jesus picked the Middle East. If he's going to come to earth, it's not going to be Moose Jaw, Alaska. He's going to come to a Mediterranean climate, and he does. So Jesus comes down there, and anyway, in this time of the year, so this would have been late summer, at around midnight, the dew settles down, and this is one of the ways that God provides for and protects his crops, so vegetation and fruits and plants and those kinds of things. They get some water from this dew. So in the text, we learn that it's probably midnight-ish, and his hair is wet. He's been working hard So how do you think she's going to respond? He comes to the door, my baby, my dove, my perfect one, my honey muffin, my sugar bear, open the door. Let's be together. Remember all those great times? I've been working hard. I know I'm late. I know I didn't show up when you thought I would, but come on, baby girl. And then she says, (laughs) verse three, y'all are laughing because you read it already. But I responded. That ought to tell you everything right there. I have taken off my robe. Should I get dressed again? I have washed my feet. Should I get them soiled? Translation, I have a headache. (laughs) I'm glad you think that's funny. But anyway... So in that culture, they didn't have carpet. They didn't have nice hardwood floors. They probably had, she's the queen, so she probably didn't have a dirt floor, but whatever. She probably had a stone floor of some sort. There's dirt, there's dust, there's debris on the floor. So the last thing you'd do is you'd wash your feet and then you'd get into bed. So you didn't take the dirt, the dust into bed with you. She's clearly already changed clothes. What can we read in this text? She was waiting for Solomon and waiting for Solomon and waiting for Solomon and waiting for Solomon. And she finally gave up waiting. And she said, that's it. You're not going to show up on time. I'm going to bed. 
but she laid in bed, but she never really fell asleep. Why? What's really going on here? She wants to be with Solomon, but her pride is in the way. Now, maybe, look, I'm not going to lie. I'll be 17 years married this August. Um, I have a mom and a sister. I've served and served alongside of a lot of women. I've read a lot of books. I've watched a lot of videos. To this day, I still don't get the other part of God's creation. <laughs> Amen, men? Amen. You, come on, you're not supposed to say that. Haven't I taught you anything for three weeks? <laughs> Let me be the idiot. You learn. All right, now listen, in all seriousness, I, in all seriousness, is she testing him? Is she frustrated at him? I don't know. Is Solomon guilty? Do you know the text doesn't say? The text doesn't say whether Solomon was guilty for working late and working long. The text only presents us with the situation that exists. It's late at night. It's later than she expected him to be home, and he's showing up. And now we have an opportunity to learn. I read some great books in preparation for this message, and one of the books I came across quoted a guy and his wife, Bob and Yvonne Turnbull, and they give four pieces of wisdom, four pieces of wisdom for you men. Men, I want you to do me a favor. Pull out a pen. Pull out your iPhone, pull out your wife's purse, grab a pen or a paper. Even if none of this sinks in, at least show her you're trying. Ladies, elbows to yourselves. I will do the job for you. You can send me an email thanking me later. So, men, there are four things your wife needs from you. Four things your wife needs from you. You ready? They're all T's. Here we go. Number one, she needs your time. If your job, if your friends, if your hobbies are getting all of your time, She's going to feel less important, insecure, and you're going to pay for it. She needs you to invest in her. She needs you to illustrate for her on a regular basis that she is important, not with your words, but with your time. I had a man come up to me after the service. He said, Pastor, can we meet? I said, what's going on? He said, my job, I'm making more and more money. I'm climbing the ladder more than ever, but it's requiring that I be gone more than ever, and my family is suffering, and I don't know how much longer we can take it. I know that's true for a lot of you men, so we could joke about it. But it's a reality. Some of you men travel a lot. And look, there is no one size fits all. We'd all like to say there is, there isn't. There, every family's different, every situation's different, every man is different, every woman's different. Every spouse has a different capacity. So some men have a capacity to do a lot of things in a little space. Some men have a capacity to do a lot of things in a lot of space. Some ladies need more of their husbands. Some ladies need less of their husbands. That's why the key, the key to navigating this thing called time is men, you need to swallow your pride and you need to swallow your insecurities. Two opposite extremes of the same problem and you need to sit down with your bride and say, what do you need from me? And you don't need to argue, you don't need to fight, you don't need to get defensive, you don't need to tell her she's wrong. And ladies, you need to be ready to tell him no more than three. Because <laughs> if you give him a huge laundry list, he's going to feel beat up and he's never going to do it. So men, my encouragement is this. You go to your wives, you say to them, look, I need to hear from you. How much time do you need? Where am I off? What do you need from me? In this season, it's gonna change. In this season, what do you need from me? And then she's gonna go away for a day or two or a week. She's gonna think about her list. She's gonna take her list of some godly women, right, ladies? Some godly women are gonna help her. You're being crazy, okay? You're asking for way too much. Don't do that. You gotta be realistic. What do you really need? Then men, what you're gonna do is you're gonna take whatever she says, those one, two, or three things, and you're gonna do every single one of them, and you're gonna add 10%. You're going to tithe back even more than she asks for. 
You're gonna sacrifice whatever you have to sacrifice, your time, your desires, your hobbies, your selfish wants. You're gonna sacrifice all those for at least six months until you earn back her trust and then she'll allow you to have a little more flexibility. And you're going, allow? I'm the man of my house. Listen, here's the principle. Happy wife, happy life. No, seriously, I mean this seriously. My pastor for the last 10 years, Alan Algram, he's back here in my left, all the way back at the right. You're all looking at him now. Um, he's here with us in the service today. I'm honored to have him here, but he actually taught me these principles. 10 years of sitting under his teachings and his leadership, he taught me that uh, loving your family means putting their needs first. And uh, if you can have your wife at peace with what you're doing, everything will go easier. So men, show her she's important by giving her the time. In my marriage, this has played out in different ways over time. Um, so recently, my wife said, Matt, um, I need you home by 4.30. That's when everything goes crazy. And I said, I can't. I mean, that's almost impossible. I'm like, go home before 4.30. Then I'm going to have to go in early. I'm going to have to work late when the kids are in bed. So I do whatever I have to do to meet that need. And I got to tell you, there's days I show up and it's like, yeah, you needed me at 4.30. And there's days she texts me. She has permission to say, I need you home earlier. I know because I get a text and she'll say, you're going to be home by 4 o'clock today, right? And that's all I need. Yep, I'll be there. 4 o'clock. Just like you asked, baby. Second thing she needs from you. She needs you to talk, men. She needs you to talk. Okay? This is not easy for you. You could talk sports and stats and gears and numbers all day long. I get it. She needs you to talk, to actually open up your mouth. Now, I figured out early in my marriage, I'll never forget, I was laying in bed one night. I've been talking. I was going off. I don't know what I was talking about. I've been talking for 30 minutes. I finally stopped and said, I'm sorry, baby. I'm doing all the talking. I'm like, you turn. Your turn. You talk. And she said, no, I just love hearing you talk. And I said, I married the right woman. <laughs> I knew I did. I married up. I outpunted my coverage. And look, here's the thing I learned. So my wife, we first got married um, out in Colorado. She had a job. I had a job. We'd come home from work. She'd say, how's your day? I'd say, it was good, baby. She'd say, well, what'd you do today? And I'd say, well, here's the two or three things that are important that were different from yesterday. Here's, here it is. 20 minutes or less. I'm done. I said, how's your day? She said, well, at 8 o'clock I did this. At 8.15. At 8.20. By the time she got to 8.30, I was like, please tell me you're not going to make all eight hours of this. I, I don't have all the time. We had to talk to learn how to talk. I know that sounds crazy. I had to be open and honest with her and say, honey, I, need, I can't take all eight hours. I need you to summarize it down. What, look, an hour, we'll do that. Maybe a half hour, whatever it is. Like, she needed to know that it was important. Early in my marriage, I tried to say, hey, I could play video games and talk at the same time. And I learned, no, I can't. I'm lying to her. I'm lying to me. I got to turn off the TV. I got to turn off the video games. I actually got to look my wife in the face and listen to her. And men, here's the biggest thing she needs when you're talking. She needs to know how you feel because you don't know how you feel. And she can't know how you feel if you don't know how you feel. I was sitting in a room full of all men and one woman. We were talking about the role of women in the Bible, and it's a tense kind of meeting for the one woman in the room. It's kind of awkward for her. And so we went around the room, and I said, I want to hear how everybody feels about what we just read and what we just studied. And every single guy went, here's how every guy started the conversation. Well, I think this, and I think that, and I think this. I didn't say anything. Then we got to the female, and she just, her emotions came flying. And then it came my turn, and I said, you know what the problem is? We're going to go back around the room and do it again, because all you men just told me what you think. Not one of you told me how you feel. She was very adept. She knew exactly how she felt about those texts. You guys don't have a clue. Are you angry? Are you sad? Are you anxious? Are you scared? You're like, I ain't telling nobody I'm scared. And that's the problem, man. She needs you to talk, to meet her needs, to understand you and feel connected with you. Ladies, help me out here. I feel like I'm talking to the wall here. Am I right? Amen. Okay, four of you agree. All right. The other thing she needs from you, man, and this will be when you'll be like, yes, sorry, right, stick with me, though. She needs touch, touch, but not in a manip manipulative way. This isn't going anywhere, touch. 
This is just simply, I love you, I'm never leaving you, and we're going to be okay, touch. This is rubbing the shoulders when she's tired or stressed. One of the things we learned in counseling, going through counseling with our son who struggles with anxiety, is sometimes when you're really anxious, stressed out, you've had a hard day, do you know the most powerful thing you could do is just hold somebody? Just hold them. Man, here's a piece of advice. You come in the house, everybody's crazy. Everybody's stressful. She's second. You're going to be home by 4.30 today, right? Right. Yep, right there, baby. I'm home at 4.30. You walk in the door, instead of, why is the house a wreck? What are the kids doing? Where's dinner? What have you been doing all day anyway, woman? You walk in the house, you whoop those kids. You walk over to her, you say, baby, I'll take care of this. I'll be right back. You'll go get them straight, and you walk over, and you just wrap your arms around her, and you hold her close. You don't say anything. If she needs to talk, she'll talk. If she needs to vent, she'll vent. Sometimes my wife and I go in the other room. She needs to tell me some things. I said, honey, I'll go in. I'll hold him. You beat him. We'll do it. Be okay. (laughs) That's not true. (laughs) And here's what will happen. If you just hold her, men, there's no other intentions. You will actually feel the stress leave her body. When she first hugs you, shoulders tight, body tight, voice anxious. And as you just hold her, I love you, baby. I'm sorry you've had a hard day. I'll bet that was really frustrating. You will actually feel her body just relax. And the fourth thing she needs to remember, she needs tenderness, tenderness. Notice how Solomon doesn't respond. Look at the very next verse. Verse four, my lover tried to unlatch the door and my heart thrilled within me. You may be like, what? Again, this is one of those things where if you understand it, it's beautiful. So Solomon's on the other side of the door. He's like, baby, darling, honey, love, oh, you are perfect. Let me in. Let's spend some time together. And she says, I've already taken off my robe, washed my feet. She's testing him, whatever it is. And instead of beating on the door, says, I'm the king. You open that door, woman. You know what he does? He reaches his hand around. He just jiggles the latch, and as soon as he does, her heart leaps within her. Why? Okay, well, here's a little boxing principle. If somebody comes at you with a right, you know what they're coming at next? A left. So if somebody's about to hit you with the right, they're exposed. You hit them with the left. That's how you get it. And this is how too far too many of you and your marriages are doing this. So she comes at you. She says, I'm tired. I got a headache. You say, you know what? You don't meet my needs anyway, baby. Nobody gets married going, for better or worse, worse, till death do us part, or we have our first big fight, and then I'm out the door. Nobody says that. Everybody knows at some point you're going to have a struggle. Everybody knows that. But what happens is little struggles, little jabs, little fights, you counteract, you counterblow their fight, their punch, and next thing you know, you've got a whole bunch of fights on your hand, and somebody says, you know what? I'm tired of this. I'm done. Far too many of you have felt the sting of this. I meet young people, 30 and under, all the time. You know what they say more than anything? I don't trust marriage anymore. My parents got divorced. They got remarried. They got divorced. They got remarried. They got divorced. They're living together. Some of you, it's your story. They're living together. They don't know how to work through stuff. They've never actually been in a relationship where they had to work through anything, so they, they practice marriage with none of the commitment. They never figure out how to handle conflict. So when you come at me, you know what? I'm going to come back, and the next thing you know, it's over. But what Solomon does is he just gently reaches in and he touches the latch. And you may be like, well, that's weird. But keep reading because there's something that happens with that latch. Look at verse 7. No, don't look at verse 7. I'm in the wrong one. Look at verse 5. 
She jumps open to the door for my love, and my hands dripped with perfume. My fingers dripped with lovely myrrh as I pulled back the bolt. So she jumps up out of the bed. She runs to the door. She can't hold it anymore. I've been trying to act like I was mad at you. I just couldn't wait for you to come home. She runs over to the door and she tries to open the door and there's frankincense, myrrh, whatever it is, dripping all over the handle. He reaches in. And if you remember this, if you weren't here, let me just tell you. So she's been wearing a necklace and she's got some sweet smelling spices on her necklace and it plays a part in their temptation leading up to these moments where she keeps saying, not yet, not yet, let's not go there. And then on their wedding night, he keeps talking about this frankincense and myrrh and how beautiful it is. So now he's shown up to his bride. He knows he's late. He's already prepared to woo her. Hey, baby, my love, he's got some sweet smelling stuff. And he reaches in and he puts it on the door. He didn't yell at her. He didn't scream at her. It's as if in his action, he says, honey, I love you. I'm never going to quit on you no matter what. Now, man, what would happen in your marriages if when she comes at you, you did that? Baby, I love you. My perfect one. I get it. I wasn't here when you thought I'd be. You're frustrated. And you just kept your mouth shut. Tenderness. Well, look at what happens next. Verse six, I opened to my lover. Oh, but he was gone. So Solomon reaches in, he touches the latch, he puts a perfume on the door, and she opens the door. She can't wait, and he's gone, and her heart sank. So she goes searching for him, but I couldn't find him anywhere. I called for him, Solomon, but there was no reply. He was long gone. How long did she sit in that bed stewing, I wonder? And he'd already walked away. This is important. Look at what happens next. The night watchmen found me as they made their rounds. They beat and bruised me and stripped off my veil, those watchmen on the walls. You may be like, wow, that's a bit extreme. Now, stick with me. This is huge. This is huge. I want to transition. I'm talking to the ladies, but this applies to both. What I'm about to say applies to both of you. Listen. So the watchman showed up. I believe it was in chapter three. If you remember, there was kind of like a dream sequence. We're not sure exactly what to make of it. She goes looking for Solomon. At this point, they're not married. And she's laying in bed and her heart is longing to be with him. And she says, I laid in bed. Finally, she gets up. She runs out of her bedroom and she goes looking for him anywhere, everywhere. And she runs into the watchman and those watchmen help her find Solomon, talk about Solomon. They have a conversation with her. And now she goes to find Solomon, but this time she's blown it. Her husband showed up to find comfort and solace in the arms of his wife after a long day and she's bitter and cold and pushes him away and she now is feeling the weight of her poor choice. This is Solomon's way of saying when you respond harshly to your spouse, there is a justice that will come from the hand of God. Mark, Dr. Mark Scott, um, when I was at my last church, actually, he preached a sermon on the justice of God, and he gave this beautiful, beautiful picture. He said, God wears two hats at all times, the hat of justice and the hat of mercy. And here's the thing. God always calls us to pick up the hat of mercy and wear the hat of mercy and leave justice in his hands. That doesn't mean we don't seek for justice for those who are being abused. That's not what I'm saying. But when we try to take matters into our own hands and extract a punishment on somebody else, then we leave God in an awkward position. Because if we've taken the hat of justice away from God, then guess what he does? He picks up the hat of mercy. And this drives us crazy all the time. We're like, God, why are you comforting them? Why are you caring for them? Why are you protecting them? And he says, because judgment was mine to repay, and you did it. So now what's left in my hand is mercy. 
Solomon actually says and gets quoted in the New Testament, if you are kind and loving in the face of persecution from others, you will heap burning coals on their head. This is not intended to sit back and go, oh, you're going to get it. No, 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 no. This is the way that we change the heart of the person that we're worried about. Think about this for a minute. You know what Jesus says about your enemies? Love them. No, no, no. Don't just love them. Pray for them. Now, if Jesus could say that about your enemies, how much more so your spouse? And I realize some of you are in a marriage where your spouse feels like your enemy, but the, the wisdom still applies. If you will pick up the hat of mercy, if you will love them, care for them, serve them, meet their needs, then what will happen is God will extract his justice. And what that usually means, guys, is not that he's going to punish them, he's going to discipline them. There's a difference. Punishment is intended to hurt. Discipline is intended to correct. And you can discipline a person who needs discipline. They'll respond to the discipline. And God will do this in your spouse's life. If you'll keep picking up the hat of mercy, he'll keep disciplining them in whatever form necessary. And sometimes it's a tremendously painful to watch. All of you who are parents in the room know, right? It really does hurt you more than it hurts them, doesn't it? Now, I heard a pastor, I've quoted him many times, his name is Tommy Nelson down at Denton Bible Church. I thought he did a phenomenal job with this book, but he said this, he said, sometimes when he's not been kind to his wife, his wife will say to him and say, honey, I love you, I'm not going anywhere, but I'm gonna let God deal with you. <laughs> and he said, I'll look at her and be like, no, not that, punch me, yell at me, anything but that. If you will just kindly love and respond in love, God will take care of it. So now I'll give the men four pieces of advice. Women, let me give you four pieces of wisdom. Four pieces of wisdom. Here's what your husband needs from you. You ready? You taking notes? Here we go. Number one, he needs you to be his cheerleader. Now, I don't mean go buy an outfit. I don't mean you got to learn rah, rah, sis, boom, bah, you're the best husband ever. What I mean is he needs you vocally to be behind him. Nobody's words will mean as much in his life as your words will. Your words will have the ability to tear down or to build up. And when you tear him down, nobody's words will hurt like yours. When my wife and I did counseling roughly 12, 13 years ago uh, for the first time, I remember my counselor later saying, Matt, I'm so proud of you and Rachel. You're one of those few clients I've had that I can hang my hat on and say, I did not waste my life. And I said, why do you say that? He said, because most people who come in here, it's too late. They've already said things they can never unsay. Those wounds will always be there. While they can forgive them, they can never forget them. They've already done things they cannot undo. I have a theory, and it's proven true over and over and over again. So you'll have to help me out if I'm right here. Men will struggle with lust. That, it's almost a guarantee. There's a reason they write books called Every Man's Battle. Men will struggle with lust. But in the same way that men struggle with lust, women will struggle to control their tongue. And so women will use gossip and backbiting and harsh words to tear down and cut and chip away. And ladies, if you're not careful, you will destroy the man you love, even unintentionally. Men, am I right? Thank you for not saying anything. You finally learned the hard way. But you know what else, ladies? You also have the power to do something profound in his life that nobody else can do. So for those of you who are new around here, this story won't make any sense. Um, but the last couple years at our church have been hard. And um, there were some hard, hard, hard nights for me. I remember uh, 
a couple months of going to bed crying almost every night. And um, I remember, um, sorry, I remember in that really hard season, I remember coming home late after an elders meeting, I think it was like 11 o'clock or 11.30 at night, and uh, my wife had heard me talk many, many times about where we were, and here's where I was at that point. I remember telling her, Rachel, I, maybe God is done with me at Kingsway, or maybe worse, maybe God is done with me in ministry. And I was venting, and I was processing, you don't need to worry, I'm not in that place now. Um, and after my wife had listened to me for many weeks, process and vent and even weep, uh, in this particular moment, she went from listening to lecturing, and she'd earned the right to do this in my life. And I'll never forget it, because uh, when she was done listening, she made it very clear, she said, I need to say something to you. And she went on, she said, Matt, I know this is hard, I know this is painful, I know you've made mistakes, but God called you here. We know that, we're convinced of that, and he has not released you, and we know that. And then she looked at me, and <laughs> she said, Matt, I see something great in you that you don't see in yourself. She said, I saw it the day that I met you. The day you asked me to marry you, I knew God had big plans for you, bigger than you could even see, and I've always seen it in you. And all the harsh things that had happened, like it didn't rebuild everything, but I tell you what, it changed my perspective. Later on, I asked her, I said, do you, did you really, have you really always thought that I could be great? She said, there's no doubt. I said, why are you just now telling me? <laughs> she said, I don't know, but it just seems right today. And then she said this, she said, your church needs you. Get in there and lead them. Amen. And I I, don't, I appreciate it, but I got to tell you, in that season, God was so faithful. There were so many times when I was feeling kicked down. Look, I blew it. I'm not going to sit here. I'm, I blew it, okay? I've made a lot of mistakes over the last two years. God has grown me, but God would always have one of you send me an email or a card or a gift card or a thank you something, a phone call. that just run into me in public, notes on my car. It was just amazing. God would move you at the right moment, but there was nothing like that moment with my wife. Ladies, you have the power to build up or tear down in ways you can't fathom. And if you're a safe place for him to come home and be vulnerable, you just watch him flourish under your care. The second thing he needs from you is he needs you to be his champion. And when I say that, what I mean is this. He needs you to support him, to build him up, to carry the torch, to carry the banner for him, but he also needs you to be there to also be the one who can speak truth. There's nobody in my life who corrects my sermons and makes them better like my wife. And man, I tell you what, when I listen to her, my sermons are so much better. And when I don't, I usually have to go home and eat humble pie on Sunday afternoon and be like, you're right, I should never use that story. I should never told that joke. I should have probably got it done a whole lot faster than I'm getting it done right now. He needs you to be behind him. That doesn't mean you don't speak the truth, but you speak it at the right times and the right ways. It's called respect. You don't tear him down in front of the kids. You don't tear him down in front of the friends. You don't tear him down in front of your mom. He needs you to carry the torch with him, for him. He needs to know that you are behind him. And if you've got something to say, you're going to say it behind closed doors. Number three, he needs you to be his companion. Men won't say this because we can't be vulnerable enough to say it, but he needs you to be his best friend. 
Men struggle with friendships. We just do. We struggle with relationships. But in your arms, you could be the one place where he could feel safe, where he could be totally vulnerable. He could share his weaknesses, his stresses, his anxieties. You could be the one place, and you can look at him and build him up. He needs you to be that. Look, what I'm about to say isn't popular, and I don't have much time, so I'm going to say it, and then we'll just move on. You can send emails to somebody else on staff. So... When God created marriage, he made Adam first, and that wasn't an accident, and then he made Eve, and it wasn't because Adam was better than Eve. The two were supposed to be one. However, he made Eve, the Bible says, to be his helper, to be his helpmate. That's not a knock, but we live in a culture where either chauvinism wins or feminism wins, and the Bible throws both of them out and says, men, step up and lead. Care for your wives. Protect them. Watch over them. Provide for them. Ladies, serve and follow their lead, and it's okay. That's the way God made it. You may say, you just don't understand. That's, not, that's just 3,000 year ago culture. And I'll say, really? Because Jesus did it. Go read a not Ephesians, Philippians chapter two sometime. It'll blow you away. It tells us that even though Jesus was God, he didn't consider equality with God as something to attain. What, what do you mean? He's already got it. That's the point. He is God, but yet he doesn't seek after the honor and the glory and the prominence of the Father. Instead, he follows the Father's lead and does whatever the Father asks him to do. And the Father, in turn, read John 14, 15, 16, 17, that whole section there. In turn, what God does is he gives the honor and the glory to the Son. And that's a picture of marriage. Man, if you'll lead with honor and integrity and kindness and gentleness and respect of your brides, she'll follow your lead and you give her the honor. It's like a dance. You ever watch a really beautiful dance? Who gets the most prominence? The woman. Now the man's leading, but she gets to do all the cool fancy stuff. She gets to wear all the beautiful garb. It's because he's leading her in a beautiful way and she doesn't mind following his lead and that's how marriage is supposed to be. Number four, he needs you to be his compliment. His compliment. Opposites do what? Attract. I know a couple in Colorado at my last church, and they were so much like me. They were constantly fireworks in their marriage. I'm not saying you can't marry somebody like you, but if you try to marry somebody who's just like you, you're going to struggle. My wife is the exact opposite of me. And last night, Al and I picked him up from the airport. He, he was talking about the limitations, the gift of limitations that God's placed on his life. My wife is a limitation in my life. And when I first married her, I thought that I picked the wrong woman because I had a wrong perspective, just being honest. God revealed to me that she was the perfect woman for me because the way I was made, I was going to burn myself out every six months and then recover for six months and then burn out for six months and recover for six months. And I married a beautiful woman who taught me balance and love and care and how important she was and how important our family was. And I am so thankful for the limitations of my kids and my wife that God has placed in my life, that I'm nobody's savior. I'm just a pastor doing my best to make a difference in this world. Men, if you will realize that she is a gift of God for you. Ladies, if you'll realize that he's a gift from God for you. And start looking at their weaknesses, not as a weakness, but as a gift from the Lord, a limitation he's placed on you, then embrace it. So now, let me just give some advice on how to do this. You're like, haven't you already done that? Yeah, but I want to go right to the Bible. I don't want to read you two sections of scriptures, and I'm going to say very, very little as we close up today. This first one, I want you to, to, to just take note of it. Romans chapter 12, verse 9 and 10. This is huge, okay? Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Don't just pretend to love others. Far too many of you are playing marriage. Instead, really love them. Hate what is wrong and hold tightly to what is good. Isn't that beautiful? 
Now, what Paul's saying here is he's saying, actually love them. Show them you love them. That doesn't mean if your husband's got a porn addiction, that doesn't mean you just ignore it. No, you hate that. But you hold tightly to what is good. That doesn't mean if she's constantly tearing you down and critical of you and harsh with you, that you're just, oh, that's okay, baby, I just love you. No, 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 you hate that, that's evil. But you hold tightly to the good things about them. You don't just throw them out because they have some of those evil things in their life. You hate those things, but then you love the good things. And then verse 10, I love this. You can get this one tattooed. Yes, your pastor said you can get this tattooed on your arm, all right. Like a heart, I love Millie and you know, whatever. And then here we go, okay. Love each other with genuine, genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. In other words, go out of your way to build the other one up. I remember when I was young, married again, a pastor at my last church, a guy named Chris Chrisfield. He was a single guy, ironically, and he said this to me. Rachel and I were having some struggles. He said, Matt, what would happen in your marriage? What would happen if the two of you tried to outserve each other? Man, I'd love to see her try. What would happen if in your marriage you tried to out-honor each other? You know what kind of marriage you would have? Instead of the contentious, backbiting, devouring attack, counterpunch marriage, you just absorb the blow and you say, you know what, I love you too much. I love you too much to fight about this. I'll let God deal with you. All right. First Corinthians, guess which chapter? 13. Some of you don't even know Jesus yet. You're still checking him out. You're not sure what to make all this, but you probably had this in your wedding. 1 Corinthians 13. I'm gonna read the first three verses, and I just wanna show you. It's really, really simple, but I'm gonna explain it at the end. 1 Corinthians 13, verse one. If I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains, but didn't love others, I'd be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor, if I even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Now put this in marriage context for a second. If I were gonna rewrite this today, it might say something like, I could have the biggest house in the world. I could have the nicest cars, the best vacations, the best clothing, the best income, the best looking spouse. I could have the coolest and smartest looking kids. I could serve in the church more than anybody. I could give more money away than everybody. But if I do not love, it would mean absolutely nothing. You can have all the fine things that life has to offer for your marriage, for your family, but if you do not love them, it will mean nothing. And it's only a matter of steps until it falls apart. If you're trying to put on a facade, a game of marriage so that others will think you've got it all put together, but internally your marriage, your family is falling apart, would you swallow your pride enough to say this isn't how I want to live the rest of my life. One day I'm going to stand before my Father in heaven and be accountable for everything that I've done with what he's given me in this life. And I want to be found on that day of hearing him say, well done, good and faithful. So what does it mean to love? Well, Paul tells us, and I'm going to read most of it, but I'm going to camp out in two very specific sections. Chapter 13, verse four. To love is to be patient and kind. Remember that hat of mercy? Love is not jealous or boastful, but what if I just won the game? Or proud or rude? It does not demand its own way. Imagine Solomon putting myrrh on the door and shaking the latch. 
He could have said, woman, you open that door. It's my home. You're my wife. No, I'm going to love you. I'm not going to demand my own way. It is not irritable. Okay, let's just let that one sink in for a minute. Men, are you on edge a lot, stressed out at work? Ladies, is there uh, a week, maybe 52 of them a year, that you feel like you're off the hook? I'm not joking. My wife's in a small group of some ladies, and they're studying some books, and this guy in the book, it's a guy writing a book, and he calls out ladies, and he says, look, I'm going to call the guys out. They get zero excuses, zero excuses. They must have self-control over lust. I don't care how hard it is. They get zero excuses. They have the Holy Spirit, zero excuses. And then he said, ladies, you get zero excuses either. It doesn't matter how your body is feeling. It doesn't matter your hormones. It doesn't matter your emotions. The Holy Spirit lives in you to give you self-control all the time. You don't get to stay all the time except for one week a month. Now, you may be saying, you can't say that from the stage, can you? It's in God's word. Look, yes, I realize there are times you feel a certain way, but if feelings are running your marriage, then your marriage will fail. Choose to be strong and say, I'm going to trust God. I don't, feel, I don't feel like honoring him or her. I don't feel like they've earned it, but you know what? You didn't earn it either, and Jesus still chose to love you. And that's why we get to this one. It keeps no record of being and that line right there would change 80% of the marriages in this room, wouldn't it? How many of you, if you went to your spouse today and said, baby, would you just tell me all the ways I have wronged you before this sermon would have said none? My wife probably wouldn't have got that treatment, to be honest. And I was going to teach this text. Here's what Jesus says on the subject, and it's hard, it's offensive, and it doesn't make sense. I get it, it doesn't always add up, but Peter comes to Jesus one day, he says, Jesus, how many times should I forgive? Seven times? Peter thought he was picking a good number. I told you when we went through Revelation, uh, seven and ten are numbers of completion. So Jesus looks at him and says, no, 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 not seven times, Peter, but 70 times seven, so that seven times ten times seven. In other words, forgive completely. Every time someone says, will you forgive me, you forgive them. So every time they wrong you, it's like it's the first time they've ever wronged you. And you know why? Because that's how God forgives you. As far as the east is from the west, he throws it into the sea of forgetfulness. This is why in another time, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, how many times should we forgive? And Jesus says, if somebody comes to you seven times in the same day to see your, your forgiveness, you forgive them every single time. In the same day, but they kept doing the same thing. Yep. And every parent in the room has to do that every day with kids. But with our spouses, we go, no, 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 you're an adult. I expect more or better from you. I'm not saying you shouldn't, but Paul says, keep no record. I actually know a couple. The man cheated on the woman decades ago, and he never looked at her. Even though he got counseling and they've stayed together, he's never looked at her and said, I am sorry. Could you imagine that? She carries the wounds for all these years. And the reason I tell you this story is because there's two things that need to happen here. Number one, Jesus says if you're offering a sacrifice and it suddenly dawns on you that somebody has something against you, leave your sacrifice at the altar, go to your brother or your sister and be restored. So part of what Jesus is saying is in order for this to happen, those of you who have wronged your spouse, you need to humbly go to them. You need to open up your heart and your mouth and say, I have hurt you. I've been treated harshly to you. I have cut you down with my words. Whatever it is, I've not been faithful to you. And you just need to open your mouth. You just need to put it out there. And then when you do, they need to forgive. 
See, in the body of Christ, we can do this because it's what Jesus did for us. Jesus longs for you to be restored to him. He longs to forgive you. This is why in those same passages, I think you'll find this in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus tells a, a story about he erase, erases somebody else's debt and then that person goes away and won't erase somebody else's debt and the first debt that he erased, the master erased, was so much bigger and his whole point telling that story is you don't realize how much debt God has erased when he killed his son to save you and you're gonna hold on to bitterness? I know this is hard and painful, but would you be willing to forgive that you might be made whole? And then Paul ends with this. Love does not rejoice about injustice, but it rejoices when the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. Now look, we're about to transition into communion. I'm gonna ask our communion service to go ahead out of the room. And I'm sorry you get to miss this. Everybody else, just stay focused. Imagine if you would commit to this in your marriage. If you would actually say, for better or for worse, for richer or poor, in sickness and in health, I will never give up. I will never lose faith. I will trust that God who can raise a man from the dead after three days can resurrect this marriage. And I will endure through everything that comes at me because that's what love does. This morning as you're gonna take this bread and this juice, I wanna encourage you to go to the foot of the cross. If you are in a broken relationship right now and you're sitting with them, would you kindly, just one of you, be bold enough to put your arm around them, pull them close and say, I love you. I will not quit on us. Let's fix this. And you take that bread and you take that juice together and you remember, you remember that Jesus died to resurrect, to give power, to give life, and he can resurrect this thing if you'll let him. What I want to do is pray over you. Let's pray. Father God, Oh God, right now there are men and women in this room and they are barely hanging on. And we need your power to actually practice this verse. God, I pray right now through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ that both forgives us and gives us the strength to do all that you've asked us to do. You've given us the Holy Spirit to have the power to fulfill all that you've called us to. God, right now, would you help us to do that, to take the right next step, God, Break down our pride that won't let us open our mouths and say, I'm sorry, I blew it, I need your forgiveness. Break down the bitterness, the root of bitterness that exists in some hearts in here to be able to look at somebody else and say, I forgive you, I release you of the debt that you've incurred. And God, may it all be driven by the power of your Holy Spirit. And Father, right now I pray for those who are wounded by divorce and adultery and sexual sin. Through this bread and this juice we're about to take, would you redeem, restore, and rebuild what the enemy has tore down? We know you love us. You've never quit. You've never given up. You are always hopeful because that's what love is, and that's what love does. So God, help us to know you love us that way. In Jesus' name.